Hi, Warren Butfinick here, bringing you another weekly podcast, Helping with Parkinson's. Our goal is to have the best quality of life possible. It's the Help with Parkinson's show, where our goal is to have the best health possible every day. This is Warren Butfinick, your host. I'm here with Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center. Dr. Sub, welcome to podcast number five. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Warren. Thanks for having me. Uh, good, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, and I'm uh, very pleased to be here. And we left off the last show talking about sleep disorders and Parkinson's. It ran a little long, so let's take about 10 minutes and finish up the topic. Okay, sounds good. You want good. to start it off? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so uh, last uh, podcast, we talked a little bit about sleep dysfunction in Parkinson's disease, and we specifically focused much of our time on REM behavioral disorder, or RBD, which is by and large the big deal, and a lot of people have RBD, and that interferes with um, their day-to-day life. But besides RBD, there are also other things that happen in sleep um, with Parkinson's disease that is probably worth talking about a little bit. One idea is excessive daytime sleepiness, uh, falling asleep frequently during the day. Um, that's a, not an uncommon complaint, and it can be quite disabling in some folks uh, to the point that they fall asleep even in short periods of inactivity. So if they're watching television, if they're just sitting quietly in a, in a chair, if they are... Um, just riding a car for a short period of time and they fall asleep right away. And now there are people who also fall asleep, who also fall asleep when they are in the middle of a conversation, for example, they're talking to somebody and then suddenly they fall asleep. This can be quite dangerous. And there were case reports of people who fell asleep while they were driving a vehicle and sometimes this was called a sleep attack. Although it turned out that it's really not a sleep attack, and it turned out it's just excessive somnolence. Additional studies have shown that there is not really a true case of acute sleep attack in the sense that it would come so severely and so quickly that you would be at risk of not knowing when it's going to come. It turned out that that's really not the case. It's more like excessive sleepiness. So what are the causes of these type of excessive sleepiness that happens in Parkinson's disease? The most common reason is what we already addressed in the previous version, that you don't sleep well in the night and you have lots of disturbed sleep. So then during the daytime, you fall asleep. So lack of good nocturnal sleep leads to daytime sleepiness. That's the most common reason. The second common reason is side effect of medication. And the most common medicine that produces excessive daytime sleepiness are the long-acting dopamine agonists. For example, ropinerol, trimipexol, uh, rotigotine, and rarely levodopa carbidopa. Now, why do I say rarely levodopa carbidopa? Because levodopa carbidopa has a relatively short half-life. So typically, even if you fall asleep on the medicine, you shouldn't be falling asleep for very long periods of time. It should be for a short nap, and then you should be able to wake up. And typically, there are periods when the levodopa wears off, 
and you don't have the excessive daytime sleepiness during that time. So uh, that's the second commonest reason. Uh, third reason is if you're misdiagnosed, you have another diagnosis. You don't have Parkinson's, but you have a different diagnosis. For example, there is a disease called Lewy body disease, LBD. Uh, LBD is characterized by excessive daytime sleepiness and also a lot of visual hallucinations. And it, it, it typically happens early in the disease, meaning after you're diagnosed, within the first two to three years, you start seeing dreams and you fall asleep during the day uh, a lot. This is typically what you see in Lewy body disease. And then the fourth, which is probably not that common, but the fourth reason why you sleep a lot during the day is side effect of other medicines that you might be taking. For example, if you're taking some benzodiazepines, sleep aids that you took late in the night, that can kind of come over the next day during the daytime and make you feel sleepy in the morning. A classic example is if you take Valium or Activan or Xanax, any of those medicines at bedtime, and you take a lot of it, sometimes the effects of that medicine can linger through the next day, and that can produce uh, some sleepiness during the daytime. So just to summarize, besides RBD, there's also excessive daytime sleepiness as one possible problem that occurs in sleep. And the commonest reason for excessive daytime sleep is the fact that you didn't sleep well the previous night. And that lingers and makes you feel sleepy the next day. Second common reason is side effects of long-acting dopamine agonists like Requip and Mirapex and Nupro. Uh, these are long-acting drugs, and they typically produce some of these side effects. Carbidopa levodopa, less likely to produce it, but it can. Uh, and that can be a problem, too. And then the last one is side effects of other sleep aids that you took late in the evening the previous night that linger the next day. So that takes care of that one um, aspect. The other aspect is not being able to sleep in the night. So some people say... With Parkinson's disease, say they go to bed at 10 o'clock and they can't, they can't seem to fall asleep. And they feel uh, that they can't get comfortable, they can't sleep, they're you know, kind of curling up in bed, they are tossing and turning and just don't fall asleep until midnight or past midnight or sometimes up to 2 a.m. they stay awake. Now, just not being able to sleep in the night is sometimes equated with another condition uh, which is called restless leg syndrome. But in fact, restless leg syndrome is different from not being able to sleep in the night. RLS or restless leg syndrome is characterized by the urge to move. So what happens in such people uh, is that they have to get out of bed and walk around for a little bit. And once they walk around, they feel better and they come back and lay in bed. They feel better and they can able to go to sleep. And then again, later on, get up and they feel like they have to move. And the movement, uh, the walking around gives them relief. Now, that's typically not what happens in Parkinson's disease. In Parkinson's disease, patients just don't get comfortable. They can't lay down and rest, and they have to move in bed, meaning they have to roll over, change position, and just not comfortable. Now, why does this happen? Why do Parkinson patients have difficulty falling asleep? The commonest reason is what we call off phenomenon. So if you think about it, you're taking Parkinson medicine, whatever that you might be taking, um, three times a day or four times a day. And many common 
medications that we use are dosed, for example, at 8, 12, 4, and 8. And carbidopa, levodopa taken at 8 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 8 o'clock. So if you are going to bed around midnight after taking your medicine at 8 p.m., then your medicine has sort of worn off. And because it's worn off, you're stiff and slow and uncomfortable, and you have a little bit of tremor, and the tremor becomes worse because you become anxious, and you cannot get to sleep. That can be the most common reason why patients uh, with Parkinson's have difficulty falling asleep. So our phenomenon. So if you're feeling stiff, slow, or you're tremulous, and you have difficulty getting comfortable in bed, that's probably the reason. Now, and this is solved typically by giving an additional dose of medicine at bedtime. And frequently, we use a medicine called Cinemet-CR, Control Release Formulation of Medication. Again, your doctor should discuss this with you in great detail, decides whether it's worth doing it or not. Uh, many times, we can use that. Um, it's majority of the patients, it's the non-compliance. They're not taking medicine on the right times and not dosing them correctly. That's the reason why they have trouble. But even in some people who are very compliant, they have difficulty falling asleep, then we might use this strategy. So, um, so we discussed on two common other reasons. And then the last one, which um, Warren brought up when we discussed this uh, last podcast, is about akathisia. Akathisia is the irresistible urge to not stay in the same position. So typically we see akathisia in anxious people. So, for example, if you were about to give a talk, you might pace around, you might walk around and say, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. So you walk around a little bit. You don't want to sit still. You just want to get up and walk around. And this walking around doesn't really give you any kind of relief. It just makes you feel that you're doing something. So this is what we call akathisia. And akathisia can occur in the setting of Parkinson's as well. And typically... Akathisia occurs, again, when the medicine is wearing off, that patients feel like they have to move. And if they didn't move, uh, something is wrong. It doesn't cause pain, unlike RLS. In Russell's leg syndrome, there's actually pain in the leg. And movement actually relieves the pain. Akathisia typically does not have any pain associated with it. They just want to move. They just want to walk around. They want to do something. And anxiety which also occurs late in the evenings when the medicine wears off, will provoke akathisia, will make people want to move, get up and move around. And again, it should not be mistaken for RLS. RLS is typically not very common in Parkinson's disease, especially because the medicine that you're taking, levodopa, carbidopa, or Requip, or Mirapex, they are very effective in treating RLS. So the chance of you developing RLS and Parkinson's is actually pretty low. Um, although there are some rare cases when you can be there together. So again, akathisia can occur. So just to briefly summarize, we talked about RBD in the last podcast. Uh, today we talked about daytime excessive sleepiness as a second problem. Third, we talked about difficulty falling asleep. And then finally, we talked a little bit about akathisia or this irresistible urge to move, which typically happens during off phenomenon. Warren, any thoughts? How about uh, nocturia, nocturia, the day and night? Is well, that something that uh, in Parkinson's patients, or is that pretty much across the board with people in that age group? 
Right. So Warren is asking about um, people who have to get up to go to the bathroom multiple times in the night. How much does that affect um, Parkinson patients? And is that part of the disease or is it just age related? This is a great question. Um, I don't think we have very clear cut answers um, as to which one is it, it is. I don't think there are good epidemiological studies and good uh, research studies that really looked at um, frequency of nocturia in Parkinson's versus non-Parkinson patients and really made a clear case for which one is the case, which one is the problem. Having said that, um, men, particularly men in their 60s and 70s, have uh, prostate enlargement, and prostate enlargement causes them to have urinary frequency, especially in the night, and having to wake up and go to the bathroom is not uncommon at all. However, um, along those same lines, uh, uh, Parkinson's disease causing urinary frequency is also not an uncommon phenomenon either. And that's because the bladder wall has some irritability and this irritability is related to changes that happens in the autonomic nervous system that does happen in Parkinson's disease. So you can have some urinary frequency related to Parkinson's as well. And the quintessential question is, which one is which? So my rule of thumb when patients tell me about nocturia is to give them the benefit of doubt and say, let's make sure this is not due to some urological reasons. And I typically ask them to see the urologist and have them uh, do a full assessment and make sure there's something reversible that is missed. So if it's a prostate enlarged, then can we do something about it? If it's something else, like for example, in women who have had multiple childbirths, do they have a urethral sphincter tone reduction and can we do something about it? And so I usually give the benefit of doubt to make sure there's not anything urological going on. And once that's solved, then may might think about doing something about um, the Parkinson's aspect of it. So I hope I answered the question more. Yes, sure. So um, we could move on to the uh, next topic of things in the in the news that may be interesting for Parkinson's patients. Right, right. So um, the most interesting thing that I saw this week. Um, which was presented in the uh, Parkinson's uh, World Congress that happen- that's happening in uh, Nice, France, um, is an interesting study that talked about the bacteriophage uh, in the gut and how they may have something to do with uh, Parkinson's disease. So um, what is a bacteriophage? Bacteriophage is a... Um, organism that typically uh, attacks bacteria. And there are uh, typically viruses, and these viruses enter into bacteria and kill the bacteria, so they're called bacteriophages. And there are a number of different bacteriophage families, and but some of these bacteriophages live in our gut. And it turned out that um, this group of investigators uh, checked whether um, the bacteriophage has anything to do with Parkinson's disease. And they found out that certain bacteriophages, population of bacteriophages, 
um, seem to have a higher risk of Parkinson's disease, um, both in um, patients as well as in certain model systems. So in order to prove the model system, what they did was they took skin cells from Parkinson patients and they grew into what we call iPSCs. iPSCs are inducible pluripotent stem cells. And um, they then used those stem cells to ask the question, what happens if you have bacteriophage? And um, the bacteriophage seemed to cause more uh, uh, illness or more disease um, in, in uh, such uh, uh, cells, it, meaning these cells seem to die quickly and seem to develop um, problems quickly. Um, so this is really preliminary, but very interesting um, that they were able to use these uh, model systems to ask the question of whether bacteriophage will actually um, be a uh, factor in the genesis of um, Parkinson's disease. Um, obviously, more research will have to be done on this, and people have to look at it more carefully to see whether um, this might be a factor in um, how we treat uh, Parkinson's in the future. Um, the paper is published in a fairly reputable journal called Science Reports, it came out uh, July 17th uh, and published online. Um, so it's not a very throwaway journal. It's actually a very good journal, and people who reviewed it seem to think very highly about this research. So I think it's very promising, very interesting. Um, what it implies for patients is that, uh, similar to what was found a couple of years ago regarding gut, gut bacteria, the gut bacteria we know um, are sort of important for the Parkinson's disease, especially formation of alpha-synuclein. Uh, now the bacteriophages may be equally important um, for the um, Parkinson's disease. So that's the takeaway that I have on, on this uh, particular paper. Um, any questions? So um, the, basically the big question is, whether it goes from the stomach to the brain or the brain to the stomach. Right. So they didn't, they weren't able to ask that question. Their, their, um, their conclusion is that um, having these bacteriophages in the gut appears to put uh, patients at risk for Parkinson's disease. If you didn't have these uh, bugs, then you didn't have it. But if you had them, then you had a higher risk. Whether this is because it does something um, in the gut and then that allows the, um, the pathogen, like for example, bacteriophage itself, or is it because it produces something else like an alpha-synuclein that allows it to go up in the brain? Which one is um, the causative? They don't know. Um, so I'll read the conclusion. In this study, we have shown the abundance of lactococcus phages in PD patients significantly differed from that of healthy individuals, most likely being the cause-detected shift of neurotransmitter-producing lactococcus, thus opening the discussion of possible roles, role of phages in the implication of phage bio, bio, biota in PD. So basically what they're saying is that not having these type of uh, bacteriophages 
seem to have some protection against Parkinson's and having them seem to cause some high risk. How exactly it does that is not clear, but something interesting, I think. There's something in the news that I've been hearing about, especially from uh, young people, is uh, about the CBD oil. That's cannabidiol. It's extracted from the flowers and the buds of marijuana or hemp plants. It doesn't produce that intoxication or that high feeling because that's caused by the uh, THC, the tetrahydrocannabinol, and that's not in there because it's made from the flowers and the buds. The thing to remember about this uh, CBD oil is that it's not standardized. There's, what you get is whatever the person that makes it decides to put in it. So it's not approved by the FDA. There's been very few standardized testing going on, and it's just not ready to be, be taken for and thought of as a drug. A lot of people think it's safe and effective because it's sold in the states that marijuana is, le- is legal, but that's not the case. There, there's been very few studies and no large studies to prove safe eff- efficacy. So our opinion here from, from this uh, podcast, at least my opinion, is it's not ready to be used yet. But uh, we'll let Dr. Soup have a say on that. Dr. Soup, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, I think this is an important topic. Almost every week I get asked when I'm in clinic whether I can get medical marijuana and more recently, since these reports came out, there's been discussion of uh, CBD oil. And there's also several YouTube videos about CBD oil and its use for um, amelioration of tremor. And um, what uh, I, we already sort of mentioned is that uh, the marijuana and cannabis uh, does have a lot of different uh, products in it. Uh, that is THC, that is THCV, there's the CBD. And then there are all these analogous substances like hemp and hemp oil and uh, other derivatives, which are all um, under investigation. The point is, I think, um, despite the very attractive and sometimes uh, very impressive videos that have come out on social media as well as on YouTube, um, we have to be very cautious on using these drugs. What I'm hearing, um, at least through my colleagues from other states, states that got approval for medical marijuana as well as recreational marijuana uh, way ahead of us, is that um, there are lots of complications, particularly cognitive complications on Parkinson patients who take these drugs um, I have colleagues from Colorado, which uh, legalized recreational marijuana and recreational recreational marijuana products, including CBD oil, um, that these patients who take them um, suffer from significant cognitive side effects um, that they are somewhat reluctant to recommend uh, it to people. So the general consensus in the field, in the movement disorder field, is that it's still early days. We don't know enough about these drugs. They have lots of side effects, especially cognitive side effects, thinking and memory problems. And so if you are young and healthy and doing well with your Parkinson medicines and you're able to manage your lifestyle pretty well, 
then uh, these are more in the experimental realm and you should be very careful and cautious on how to take them. My own recommendation is that if you're really serious about considering one of these things, uh, whether it's medical marijuana or whether it's uh, CBD oil, you should consider participating in one of the research trials that are going on. Um, There are several research trials looking at uh, the effects of these compounds. We herself in Hershey have a program that's just starting up um, because, you know, Pennsylvania legalized medical marijuana just uh, recently. Uh, We have a research program here at the Hershey Medical Center uh, working with my uh, colleague, Dr. Mark Stahl. We are starting a research uh, effort to examine um, both medical marijuana and other derivatives, including uh, CBD oil. Uh, to examine its effect in Parkinson's, specifically trauma-predominant Parkinson's, see whether trauma can be improved in people who are resistant to um, improvements in that area. So I completely agree with Warren's uh, warning or recommendation, which is uh, these are not entirely safe products. Its safety is not proven. FDA has not really given a green signal to use in every, any kind of situation like that. So because of that, we have to be uh, more deliberate and cautious on how we use these drugs. And I would recommend that we use it under the the setting of a research protocol, at least for now. Warren? Yeah, that makes perfect sense, especially that there's no no standardized formula for this drug. So, you know, everybody's getting a different, different amount of percentage of active drug. There's no, there's no standard, so you have to be very careful that it's not approved by the FDA. Right. Agree. So I think that um, sort of sums it up uh, where we are and where we think. Um, I hope to see you next week for another fantastic podcast. Uh, and uh, you have any closing thoughts? Uh, we, we need some people to, to write in to us on the, on the website for – for topics they'd like us to discuss because we haven't, we've only had maybe one or two, but it'll be nice to have a good interaction with, with the uh, people that listen to the website, listen to the podcast, look at the website and give us ideas on what to do because we're, we're very open to any, any questions. And with, between Dr. Soup and myself, I think we're pretty well-rounded medically and pharmacology wise. And, uh, you know, we just want to keep our shows in tune with the audience. Yes, I echo the same thing. I think your participation is valuable. Your input is valuable. This is a program designed to help you all. Um, So please uh, send us your feedback and your requests. And um, any, any of those things that we can do, we'll certainly do it next time. Have a great one, Warren. Thanks for the... Bye-bye. Bye.